Good morning, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. So good to see all of you. We are continuing in our FAQ Frequently Asked Questions series, sermon series. And today's question is, how do we reconcile faith and science? How do we reconcile faith and science? We'll be looking at just two verses from the Bible, Romans chapter one, verses 19 to 20. Uh, You can turn to your Bibles, turn to your apps. We'll also have it projected overhead. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. May God the Holy Spirit bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, that is mankind, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, mankind, are without excuse. This is God's word. How do we reconcile faith and science? I'm not, I don't know who submitted this question. Uh, you know, this sermon series is uh, taking questions submitted by our members and we're tackling them one by one. But I don't know who submitted it, but I want to thank you for submitting such an easy question. This is so easy. Uh, we're, uh, this will probably be the shortest sermon in Christ Central history, probably about seven minutes or so, because it's just that easy. Uh, of course, I kid. I'm, I'm, I'm joking to the utmost. Uh, lot to, we can talk about. There's a lot we can talk about. There's whole books and books and books written about the relationship between faith and science. Um, you know, I hope that we can do, I can do this justice for us today. And uh, certainly there's a lot of discussion to be had afterwards, a lot of further uh, research, a lot, of, a lot more we can do. Hopefully we can at least just start that conversation through some of the topics brought up today. And certainly we're going to get a little bit academic today, so please brace yourselves for that one as well. Put on your thinking caps for that. But to, add, uh, to address this question, how do we reconcile faith and science? We'll just be going through three uh, motions, starting with A words. First, we're going to address the assumption embedded into this question, the assumption, and then attempt. We're gonna attempt to answer this question, how do we reconcile faith and science? And then lastly, attitude. What attitude are we to have as we approach this question, as we seek to answer this question? So the assumption, the attempt, and then the attitude. So first the assumption within the question. I don't know why, but I tend to be quoting Nacho Libre a lot in my messages these days. Um, but I remember a scene where Nacho and his wrestling tag team partner, Esqueleto, they're, they're in a match. And Nacho goes up to Esqueleto and says, pray to the Lord for strength. And Esqueleto responds, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Right? And he, he, you know, he makes this statement that, that it's, they're mutually exclusive. I, I can't believe in God because I believe in science. That's his point. Right? And maybe that's not the assumption of the person who submitted the question, whoever you are out there, but certainly that's a very popular assumption in our, in our culture, in, our, in, in the world around us, that faith and science somehow are at odds, that they're mutually exclusive, that you can't have both. And perhaps that's a, lot of, that's a big reason why a lot of times people don't even address the question, don't even try to answer the question of the relationship of faith and science. But we clearly see in the scriptures that the scriptures say otherwise. We saw in our own passage in Romans chapter one, Paul says, the apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that by observing and gaining a knowledge of the natural world, it doesn't lead us away from God, but it actually leads us to God. It leads us to a knowledge of God. 
to the point that Paul even goes as far as to say boldly that there is no one, no, none, no one in mankind is without excuse because God is so present, so revealed, even in our study of the natural world. Psalm 19, verse one, says something similar. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The psalmist's point, of course, is simply all, all, of, all of creation, all the heavens, the skies, everything, they're, they're just crying out the glory of their maker. They're declaring the glory of God. They're proclaiming that this is God's handiwork. And we have, of course, a, a spiritual, a theological rather, a theological term for this. It's called general revelation. Christians believe that God reveals himself, of course, through special revelation, the scriptures, very poignantly, very thoroughly about himself. But that's not the only way God reveals himself, that he also reveals himself in general revelation, through natural means, through the things we see around us, the created world around us, uh, through natural things like philosophy and logic. And uh, we see general revelation throughout the scriptures. And there's a, there's a very well-known um, example of general revelation having its effect on someone, uh, even in the world of science. An English astronomer by the name of Fred Hoyle, he was a scientist who calculated the conditions necessary to create carbon way back in 1953. Um, he, he basically drew a lot of research and study and, uh, and trial. He determined th- this calculation for how carbon could come to be, how carbon could appear in this world. And his conclusion was that the odds of this occurring by chance Right, he was an atheist originally, and you know he believed that you know everything came randomly through through natural selection, through through chaos. And in his study, he realized that the odds of carbon appearing by chance through random chaos seemed so phenomenally low that he converted from atheism to a belief that the universe reflects a purposeful intelligence. Of course, when he went out and said that, very controversial in, in the scientific community, uh, basically he was, he was talking about God. He didn't become a full-blown Christian, but he was saying, after, what I, after studying the natural world, and in his case specifically, uh, how carbon comes to be, he said, I, just, I can no longer be an atheist. I just can't do it. God revealed himself to Fred Hoyle in that general revelation. And all this to say that faith and science certainly are not at odds. It's, it's an assumption we often make, but it's not the case. And of course, if we equate science with a, a completely naturalistic worldview, a completely materialistic worldview that makes no room for the supernatural or the spiritual or for God himself, if that's how we define science, then of course, they don't, they're not compatible. But science is not, equate, is, is not a one-to-one equation with, natural, uh, with a naturalistic worldview. There, there is room for compatibility because we define science simply as the study of the natural world. The study of uh, the natural world through testing and observation. Uh, and it does not equate a naturalistic worldview. Now for Christians, I think a, a question that often comes up is, what do we do with the supernatural? I remember one of the brothers at our church asked me, you know, like, do we really believe in things like Jonah being swallowed by a fish? It just seems a little far-fetched. Do we believe these very supernatural occurrences uh, in the Bible? How do we do so? And I would actually say that to believe in miracles, to believe in the supernatural, if we believe in a creator God, 
is actually not that big of a step. Right? It's, not a, it's not a far step to say that the God who created the universe and all of its natural processes, all of its natural laws, who exists above them rather than within them, can easily, if he wills, if he wants to, bend those laws and work apart from those laws. When I was a kid, one of my best friends, his parents owned a 7-Eleven store. And we loved going there because there was one very important thing there at that 7-Eleven store. And it was a Street Fighter II arcade machine. And if we were lucky, it, it was so rare, but if we were lucky and we went there and at the same time as the arcade man was there, the man who runs all the arcade machines, then it was a treat because he would then do some, I don't know what he did, he used the key and he flipped some switches and all of a sudden it was, it would, the machine would be on free play mode. And now we could play this arcade machine for free, we don't have to put in the quarters. We can just play it as much as we want. And those would be the best days of my life. <laughs> they were wonderful. And, and of course, the arcade man, he could do this, right? He, he's the one in charge. He's in charge. The natural order of the Street Fighter II arcade machine is that, you know, the natural economic order in this case and the mechanical order is that you have to put in a quarter, sometimes two if it's expensive, to make it work, right, to make it play. But the arcade man could, go, could bend those rules. He had the special key. He had the special code he could put in to, to go beyond the natural order of that machine. And of course, I'm sure you get the point. God is the eternal, ultimate, divine arcade man of this world, right? Of this universe. He can override his system anytime he pleases. It's not such a big step. Uh, if we do believe in a creator God who created everything and who runs and sustains everything uh, for him to at times, not always, in those rare moments, in those, you know, in, in those special moments, those, those best days of my life moments, to do that. I would also say that in this question of how do we reconcile faith and science, there's probably a more important underlying question, a more poignant, more specific underlying question that we all probably wrestle with, and that is the question of origins. How do we reconcile scientific findings with what the Bible tells us about the origin of the universe, and about uh, human origins. I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, I mean, we just talked about assumptions here and it's not good to make them, but I'm assuming that when someone asks how do we reconcile faith and science, almost, uh, almost always they're thinking about origins, the origins of the universe, uh, the origins of man. And so that leads us to our attempt to actually answer the question. And to do this, I am going to uh, present to you three worldviews, Christian worldviews, uh, when it comes to understanding the origins of the universe. And within these three worldviews, there's so many different nuances and differing uh, views within even these worldviews. I, I'm, I'm giving very sweeping generalizations, but hopefully uh, this will help us kind of understand just the different approaches uh, many Christians take when it comes to faith and science. And of course, I do have to give a disclaimer that we do have to pick a side, we do. But when we do so, we still treat those we disagree with as brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, we don't look down on those that don't, that don't end up in the camp that you side with. You know, and we'll actually address that in a, in a later FAQ question as well. But if we could uh, get it projected overhead, there's basically three views I want to present to you. Three world views. First is young earth creationism. Young earth creationism, and uh, I'll just tell you all three. Young earth creationism, old earth creationism, and theistic evolution. And we'll, t we'll tackle them one by one. Young Earth creationism, typically, 
they have a completely literal reading of the creation accounts in Genesis, completely literal. So therefore they view the days of creation in Genesis one, right, the six days of creation, they view them as literal 24 hour time periods. They of course naturally view Adam and Eve as historical people, people that actually existed. And they typically try to date the earth um, using the Bible and the data we see in the Bible to about 6,000 to 10,000 years old, that the earth is between six to 10,000 years old. Uh, one notable young earth creationist is Ken Ham. He, is the, the, he runs the Creation Museum, and he also runs the organization Answers in Genesis, which also has a very uh, prolific website. And I would say most of the time, if you ever Google questions related to faith and science, you, most of the time the answers you'll find are from young earth creationists. They just, they got their Google game down. They're, they're very present on the internet. Um, so that's young earth creationism. Next we have old earth creationism, sometimes referred to as progressive creationism. And for them, they have not a completely literal reading of the creation accounts, but an essentially literal reading. So they're able to make room for literary devices, figuratism, Im imagery, things like that. Uh, they typically do not view the creation days as literal 24-hour periods. However, they do view Adam and Eve as historical people, real people that existed on this earth. And they typically deny that you, the ability to date the earth. They, say, they don't say that the, the Bible tells us that the earth is old, but they tell us the Bible doesn't tell us how old the earth is. And then therefore they're old earth creationists uh, more because of scientific findings. Uh, two prominent, notable uh, old earth creationists are professors by the name of C. John Collins and Vern Poitras. Uh, they both actually have very good books on the relationship of faith and science as well. So if you want to do some further research, you can uh, look them up. So that we have young earth creationism, old earth creationism. Stay with me. Stay with me. I know it's a lot of information. Uh, and lastly, we have theistic evolution, evolutionary creationism. These are brothers and sisters who are believers, they believe in God, they believe in the Bible, but they do believe in, uh, that God used macroevolution uh, in his creation. Now, of course, we're not talking about microevolution here. Everyone believes in microevolution within a species, but uh, they believe that God used macroevolution, evolution from species to species uh, within his creation. They typically view creation account and the days of creation, as well as Adam and Eve, as all symbolic. And uh, one prominent uh, theistic evolutionist, evolutionary creationist is Francis Collins. He's a Christian biologist who was actually one of the leaders in the Human Genome Project. I'm sure we've all, we all know about that. It's not a Christian uh, uh, organization, the Human, Human Genome Project, but he was a prominent leader in that. So we have all three. Uh, hopefully I didn't put you to sleep with this, but I wanna say, take a moment, look at these three. You don't have to say it out loud. But I want you to think, guess, or, or make a good educated guess. Where do you think Christ Central falls on this spectrum? From young earth creationism to old earth creationism to evolutionary creationism. Where do you think, I'm gonna give you a moment to ponder. Where, where do you think Christ Central falls on this spectrum? Okay, I'll give you the answer. I know the suspense is killing you. The answer is we, typically fall on old earth creationism. All, all of our pastors uh, typically have old earth creationist views. Um, and there's just, there's a lot we can say, but I'm just gonna touch on two 
uh, two topics related to these things, and that's the age of the earth, how old is the earth, especially biblically speaking, and uh, the historicity of Adam and Eve. Are Adam and Eve historical figures? We're gonna touch on, uh, those are such important points, we're gonna touch on them pretty quickly. The age of the earth, right, the age of the earth. I, I, I do apologize to my young earth creationist brothers and sisters, and there are many of them, and there are many of them, or I'm sure all of them are very faithful, uh, awesome brothers and sisters. But it just seems to be that it's very, very hard to reconcile uh, scientific findings with an, an, a young earth view. It doesn't mean that we have to let science overtake the Bible and science supersedes the Bible, um, but they do have to work together, right? They do. They're not mutually exclusive, but they do have to work together. Um, but not only is a young earth view not the most scientific, seemingly scientific view, but it's also not necessarily a biblical view uh, to think that the earth is only 6,000 to 10,000 years old. If you know about the ancient Near Eastern context, um, there's a lot of genealogies throughout the Old Testament. And a lot of times, young earth creationists use these genealogies. You know, this person was this, this person lived this many years and was father to this person. And this person lived this many years and was father to this person. And it goes on and on. And young earth creationists often use that to date, they go back, right? They work backwards. Well, if this person lived you know, this many years and this many years and this many years, and they try to determine the age of the earth through that, However, we know from ancient Near Eastern uh, genealogies that a lot of times names are left out purposefully from genealogies, that it's not a suitable way of actually dating the earth through these genealogies. But more importantly, more importantly is the creation days. Are they literally 24-hour days or not? Um, and I will tell you right now, not a single one of your pastors here at Christ Central believes that the creation days, the six days of creation, were literally 24-hour days, not a single one. Um, if you do believe that, that, I mean, you could, we still love you and you could be a part of our church, but I'm just telling you the view of the three pastors at our church. Uh, none of them see it that way. The, the account of creation in Genesis 1 uh, is, we have to ask ourselves, what is it trying to tell us, right? What is it trying to do? First of all, I do want to tell you, we don't just pick and choose. Well, I like this passage, so I'm going to take it literally. I don't like this passage, so I'm not going to take it literally. We, don't, we never do that. We have to always ask ourselves, what is the passage trying to do? What is Genesis 1 trying to do? And one Old Testament scholar by the name of E.J. Young says that this Genesis account is exalted, semi-poetical language. Right? Basically, he's saying Genesis 1 is poetic-ish poetic-ish, right? It's not poetic because if you say that Genesis 1 is poetic, it's a poetry, then all the Hebrew scholars are gonna get mad at you because the Hebrew scholars will say, no, 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 Hebrew poetry is a very certain way and it's not Hebrew poetry. But even this Old Testament scholar who's an who's a expert in Hebrew will say it's semi-poetical, right? In our language, poetic-ish, right? Poetic-ish. And if it's poetic-ish, then there's, there's some room for figurativeness, imagery, uh, after all, even Peter, 2 Peter 3.8 says, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And also, hey, think about this. I'm gonna pop quiz y'all, so I could, you know, I'm gonna put you on the spot to get your attention. What did God create, or rather, what day did God create the sun, moon, and stars? You don't have to answer it out loud, because I don't want you to be embarrassed if, you're, if you say the wrong day, but what day did God, in the creation account, what day did he create the sun, moon, and stars? Keep it in there. 
day four, right? He created the sun, moon, and stars on day four. And actually, in Genesis 1.14, God actually says straight up, let there be lights in the heavens to separate the day from the night, the sun, moon, and stars, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. God himself literally says, I'm gonna put the sun, moon, and stars in the sky, and this is gonna be now how we can separate, you know, this with time, how we can actually have days, right? This is actually how we're gonna have seasons and years. And the funny thing, important thing, the interesting thing is that it's on day four that he creates days, in a sense. He creates the sun, the setting of the sun and the, the rising of the sun um, to, to differentiate days. So what happens to days one, two, and three? Were those days two, right? Were those 24-hour days if we didn't even have the separation of days yet? Uh, so the, once again, another figurative uh, thing to consider. And then lastly, lastly, we have the framework view, if we could put that up. This is, this is the last real nerdy thing you'll get today. The framework view of, the, of creation, um, made famous by or at least one of its most well-known proponents is a professor by the name of Meredith Klein, who was a professor at Westminster Seminary. And he, he as well as others, uh, notes that if you look at the days of creation, that's a very interesting pattern. There's this interesting correlation between day one and four, two and five, and three and six. As you can see, there's, uh, on day one, there's light. Just generally, God says, let there be light. But it's day four that specifically he says, you know, let there be sun, moon, and stars. Day two, sky and water, the skies and the seas. And then day five, it's the inhabitants of the skies and the seas, the birds and the fish. Day three, land. Day six, the inhabitants of land, the land animals, and of course, men. And we see this interesting pattern, right? It's not, uh, he doesn't say, I'm gonna create light, therefore I'm gonna create the sun, moon, and stars. I'm gonna create sky, therefore I'm gonna create birds. He, he first does the, the backdrops first, day one, two, and three, also known as the kingdoms, and then he creates the inhabitants of the kingdoms, uh, four, five, and six, or also known as the kings of these kingdoms. All this to say, there's this clear literary device here that perhaps, you know, of course this is a hypothesis, perhaps that the, the, the aim of Genesis 1 is not to give you a very thorough, chronological, scientific, here are the 24-hour days and everything that happened in these days, but perhaps in a very literary, uh, you know, even beautiful way, in a systematized, structural way, they're just simply communicating. God created the world. God created the universe. And it's using even poetical, poetic-ish language to do that. And if that is the case, then we're not bound to these 24-hour days. Um, so that's the age of the earth, right? If they're not 24-hour days, then we can't date the earth, then the earth can be very old, right? These can be ages. Who knows how long these periods were? We just quite simply don't know. We don't know. Secondly, the second big issue is the historical nature of Adam and Eve. Are Adam and Eve really historical people? Did they actually exist? And the answer for this one is a lot more simple. We don't need any slides for this one. Uh, quite simply, we believe that there was a historical Adam and Eve because the Bible speaks of them as historical people and not just Genesis 1, or, or rather, not just Genesis 2. We see in other parts of scriptures, other parts that are meant to be taken very literally from Apostle Paul who speaks very plainly uh, or from genealogies of Jesus in, in Luke chapter 3. Adam is named simply as a, a real historical person. In Luke 3, that we give the genealogy of Jesus and we see you know, this person was this person's father and this person's father and we see all these historical people and it ends up with Adam. And it doesn't really seem to make sense if Luke, who was an intellectual person, 
uh, thought Adam was a symbolic, figurative person, but he puts him in this genealogy. More importantly, Romans chapter five and 1 Corinthians 15, Apostle Paul, he speaks of Adam very much as just a historical person. And he makes a very, very important point uh, when he compares Adam to Jesus. In Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Paul actually says, uh, in the first Adam, mankind fell. Right? We all fell because of Adam. But in the new Adam, in the last Adam, Jesus Christ, if we are represented by him in faith, then we have our salvation. And that's a huge point that Paul is making. It's a, it's a, and it's strangely a huge point to make if he didn't even think Adam was a real person. And of course, we, we use the principle of scripture, illumining scripture. And, uh, and we, so we, we take it seriously. We take it seriously. But I, I would think that when it comes to the scientific question, the relationship with science when it comes to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve the question that probably arises naturally for most of us uh, or all of us, is well, what about all the other people? Right? If, if, it, if we started with just Adam and Eve, what about all the other people that we see? Just like, did really everyone come from Adam and Eve? Right? From this one couple, did the whole world get populated through them, uh, ultimately? And this question gets real for us if we just read Genesis just a little bit further. Once we get to Cain and Abel, uh, Cain was, of course, the son of Adam and Eve, and he kills his brother Abel. And interestingly, Cain is afraid. He's afraid of all these other people that will want to kill him. He says, I killed Abel, now what if people want to kill me? Who are all these other people? And he actually moves. Cain has to move away, right? And he moves to another land, and it's inhabited by all these people. And he gets married there. He marries a gal from that land. Who was she, right? Where do all these people come from? The traditional answer is, of course, that Adam and Eve, um, you know, it was, a, it was a long, bygone era, it was long ago, it was very different, people lived longer, uh, people would have, could have much more, many more children, and the traditional answer is that Adam and Eve just had a lot of kids. They just, they just had a lot of kids. And, and those, those children had children, and you know, that created the world. So for Cain, he was afraid of his relatives. He was afraid of his brothers and sisters or his nephews and nieces. Uh, Cain was afraid, or rather, Cain moved to a land inhabited by his relatives. He married one of his relatives, be it his sister or be it his niece. Uh, that's the traditional understanding, but you know, actually, that's not the only possible answer. I find this very interesting. This comes from a professor by the name of C. John Collins. He's an Old Testament professor at Covenant Seminary. And I have to be very careful here because he offers this merely as a possibility. He doesn't, pro he doesn't promote this view. But he actually gives this as a real biblical possibility. Maybe, maybe, I'm not, I don't want to put words in his mouth. He gives it simply as a, as a maybe. Maybe God created other people as well. Maybe after he created Adam and Eve, he actually created other people but those people were under Adam and Eve. Adam, Adam was still the ruler, the leader of this group of people. And so when Adam fell, when Adam and Eve sinned and fell, all the people under him also fell. Right? Not, not that these people were under him as his offspring, but they were under him as still a representative. Adam was still the representative. Once again, the Bible's not clear on this. We, we can't uh, say definitively one way or the other. But it's an interesting conjecture. It's an interesting possibility. And all this to say, we don't have to be bound necessarily to the traditional answers. 
that there are other possibilities, but we have to accept that. We just simply don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't explain to you. Adam and Eve had a lot of kids and, and all these kids had a lot of kids and they married each other and they had more kids. It just doesn't say that. Or it doesn't say, well, God created other people. It just doesn't say, it's, scripture is silent on this issue. All we see is at one point, it seems like it's just Adam and Eve. And then all of a sudden, by the time of Cain and Abel, there seems to be a community of people. And we just have to accept that we're not sure about this, but we're not bound necessarily to the traditional answers either. And at the end of the day, we're just not, we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with not being super clear, 100% clear on all these things. But we can give educated and biblical guesses. And this leads us actually to the last point, the attitude as we, as we address this question, the attitude as we approach this question. And I'm sure if you had to guess, you could guess what that attitude needs to be. We need to adopt an attitude of humility. We need to have a humble posture as we seek to answer and address these questions. First, we need to be humble because we don't have all the answers. Quite simply, the Bible does not tell us certain things. It doesn't tell us everything. The Bible very much gives us answers on a very need-to-know basis. And naturally, we have to accept that the Bible is not a science book. Right? It's not trying to tell us all these scientific, uh, thorough processes that our modern scientific sensibilities demand. Right? The Bible's not trying to do that. It's making theological points about who more so than the hows. Um, and so in that sense, we do agree with Homer Simpson, right? In that sense, when he, in a moment of panic, he flips through the Bible and he says, this book doesn't have answers, right? Uh, uh, hilariously offensive, right? Uh, but to a certain degree, if we're asking questions that the Bible doesn't seek, isn't trying to answer, then we're not gonna get the answers. Uh, how old is the earth? The Bible doesn't try to answer that question. We have to, we have to, we look at other general revelation to see that. What happened with all these people? We just simply don't know, right? With Adam and Eve, all we know is what, what Genesis tells us. After that, it's, it's our best guess. And we have to be okay with that. And we also have to be humble because we accept that. Because we accept that it doesn't tell us everything with certainty. It makes us careful about what we affirm and what we deny and the degree of certainty with which we do that. Right, it makes it so that when we see someone who disagrees with us, a fellow Christian or even a non-Christian, that we have to have a posture of humility, that there are things that we can't be so sure about. We can only be sure what the Bible seeks to answer and tell us. So that has to make us humble. Secondly, on the flip side, we also need to be humble because we recognize science can't give us the deepest answers. The Bible doesn't give us all the answers, but science doesn't give us the deepest answers. We certainly recognize and praise and, and marvel at all the, the development and developments and the growth and the, and the, the growth in knowledge and, and technological progress that humans make. As people created in the image of God, bestowed with this creative power, it's, a, it's awesome that, that we've come so far. But at the same time, we still recognize these developments and progress can only take us so far. Francis Collins, the Human Genome Project biologist that I mentioned earlier, he, despite someone who you know, is an evolutionary theist, a theistic evolutionist, he denies that science could provide answers to the most pressing questions of human existence. He actually, you know, he says that he went out and he made a statement. Science cannot answer the most pressing questions of human existence. And a well-known atheist and neuroscientist 
uh, by the name of Sam Harris, he responded. He responded to that. And he actually said, no, actually, if, if, if we have a naturalistic worldview, if we believe only in science, then, and he, this is his own words, he said, then there is no immortal soul, there is no free will, there is no knowledge of any sort of moral obligation, there is no spiritual hunger, there is no genuine altruism, and that's the end of the quote, but much less, there's no beauty, there's no sense of human dignity, there's no sense of human rights, and Sam Harris would say yes, yeah, as someone who's a completely, complete naturalist, I don't believe in God or supernatural or anything, spiritual things or anything, he concedes, yeah, those are all illusions. Those are all products of natural selection. They only remained in our DNA. These sort, this, this sense of altruism and the sense of being good to other humans, human dignity and morality. We only have that because our ancestors, uh, the ones who survived had that. And it's all just a product of natural selection. And that's his own answer. That's, that's the, the naturalist's own answer. And I don't know about you, but when I look at my own experience just as a human, my human experience, I just can't buy that. I can't buy that. My sense of morality, my sense of human rights, my sense of human dignity, my sense of beauty, my sense of, of, of uh, the fact that there is a morality, that that's, that's simply an illusion, that's simply just a product of our natural selection, that at the end of the day, Sam Harris would concede that ultimately it's not real. And I, I would dare to say, that all of our experiences, all of the deepest longings and experiences and desires of our hearts quite simply tell us otherwise. They quite simply tell us otherwise. They tell us that, that, that there is a God who made us and had gave us these hearts with these sorts of, of, of understandings of morality and beauty and human dignity. That we can't deny that because that's how we were made. And even as we prize scientific development, uh, as we continue, continue to grow and make more and more progress and development, we're reminded with each new step we take forward in, in our uh, science and technology, it's always a stark reminder of our fallenness. There's always still a stark reminder of our fallenness. Just think about this, right? It, I mean, we live in an age now where there are people who actually never experienced life without the internet, right? For some of our young folks in this, in this congregation, you know, when I, when I had to find out something, I had to go to the library, right? I had to actually get out of my house and go to another building, another place and find books and encyclopedias. There was a time like that and to think, wow, the internet changed the world. It truly just changed the whole world. How we do everything, Inter there's information just at our fingertips. And yet, of course, even with something like the internet, which is such a huge blessing to this world, we face stark reminders of our fallenness the tragically ease of accessibility of pornography, the rampant cyberbullying, rampant misinformation. Right, we're con constantly confronted by, by our fallenness, even as we prize and, and note these wonderful advancements. 
You know, lately I've been seeing more and more articles about the imminent arrival of designer babies. Have you guys seen articles about that? That one day, you know, uh, or you know, very soon, you know, you'll be able to ch- choose what you want in your in your baby, right? You could choose the gender. You could, cho- you know, you could choose genes and qualities that will reduce the risk of disease. You can choose. Uh, maybe for some even say perhaps one day you'll be able to choose how tall your baby will be. And it sounds like something out of a science fiction novel, but it's literally. People saying, scientists saying, this is going to be a possibility soon. And as just interesting and you know, f- debatable all that is, one thing I know for sure is that even if that comes to be, that's never going to get rid of sin. Right? Even if you can have designer babies and, and you can ha- create the best babies in the world for yourself, it's never going to prevent their need for a savior. You can't weed out sin uh, through, through genetic manipulation we will always still need a savior and we'll always be confronted with that reality. So first, we need to be humble because the Bible doesn't give us all the answers. Secondly, we need to be humble because science can't give us the deepest answers. But lastly, we need to quite simply be humble before the Lord. We need to be humble before the Lord. When we study the natural world, when we see all of its complexities, all of its mysteries, all of its beauties, What's our natural response? How can we help but not be in awe? How can we help but not be humbled by that? When we really study and see how great and vast our universe is, when we consider, especially if you're Christian, how vast and awesome and great uh, creation is, and then to think the creator is infinitely greater, how can that not make us humble? John Piper famously once said that if you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, if you're, if you're marveling at the Grand Canyon, one thought that never comes to your mind as you're doing that is, I'm so important, right? You don't just, you don't do that, right? When you look at the northern lights or you just see the ocean and you see the dolphin, the dolphin jumping out of the water and you just see, this world is amazing. You don't ever say, wow, as I look at this, I just can't help but think, I'm awesome, Right? You just don't do that, right? You can't help but be humbled as you consider this world, this universe, and the, the magnificent nature of it, and truly the mysterious nature. There's so much we don't know and understand about the workings of the world. And then to think the creator is infinitely greater. We can echo with the psalmist, Psalm chapter eight, verses three and four. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, I love this. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Right, beautiful, right? As I look at all the wonder of creation, as I see the vastness of it, the beauty, the glory of it, what is man? God, what is man that you're mindful of me? Who am I that you're mindful of me? And that, that's the most humbling part, that God, the creator of the universe, would be mindful of you and me that he would care about you and me. That even though he made us and he doesn't need us, he would actually love us to the point of entering into his creation. He saw his creations ruin his creation. He saw the creatures of his creation ruin it, mess it up with sin and suffering. But he would love it so much that he would step into this spoiled, stained creation. You know, it's that, that illustration of the author writing himself into the story. But this author didn't write himself into some nice, pleasant story. 
some feel-good story. This author would write himself into a story filled with sin and suffering. This author would write himself into the story filled with betrayal and hatred, and ultimately he would go to a cross by entering this story. Would that be what causes humility and wonder in our hearts? You know, I love the line from a song called Till I See You from Hillsong. It goes like this, speaking to God, praising God. You are the voice that called the universe to be. You are the whisper in my heart that speaks to me. And isn't it amazing to think that's the same voice, the same voice that called the universe to be, that upholds and sustains the universe, is the same voice that calls you by name and calls you to to rest and trust in the work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness and not your own. When it comes to the question of reconciling faith and science, we need to be humble. We need to be humble. We need to be humble because we, don't have, we have to admit we don't have all the answers. The Bible doesn't give us all the answers. We need to be humble because we also recognize even with the greatness of our human achievements, science can't give us the deepest answers. But most importantly, we need to be humble because the Lord gives us the most important answer. The answer to sin and suffering and death. And he would answer that with, his, with himself, by giving up himself. He would answer that by becoming treated like a sinner on the cross, by experiencing suffering and death on that cross so that he could redeem his broken creation and make it whole again for you and for me. Let's pray.